Um, today, we are kicking off a brand new series, new year, new series, and uh, it's called If My People, and we're going to, it's a series, it's going to only be four weeks long um, in the book of Second Chronicles, full disclosure about Chronicles, if you've never read it, it is quite possibly one of the most boring books in the Bible. It's, there are nuggets in there, and we're going to cover those nuggets of good stuff. But, like, there's just a lot of names, a lot of numbers, and I don't like being a numbers guy. And so, like, Chronicles doesn't typically make my A list of, like, what's your favorite book of the Bible, Tim? That's not it. Um, but there are some nuggets in there, and we're going to look at some of those because uh, there is a promise that is made. Uh, in Second Chronicles. We're not going to cover the promise today, but basically at the dedication of the temple, which we'll talk more about in a second, at the dedication of the temple, um, Solomon, the king of Israel, he made this great show of devotion and dedication and this great prayer to God, you know, setting apart this place for the worship of the Lord. And God appeared to him in a vision later on and gave him this promise. And he said, you know, I see you. <laughs> um, and so here's my promise to you. If my people who are called by my name will turn to me and pray, you know, humble themselves and pray, um, I will heal their land and restore them. And I'm paraphrasing. Um, but there's that promise there. And so as a way of just kicking off this new year, um, I want to get us started off right. I want to get us started in the right direction. I want, to, um, I want us to be seeking the Lord this year because whether it's uh, personally or together as a group or maybe in your family or, or your neighborhood or whatever, everybody... Uh, we need some of that healing restoration, amen? Uh, we need some of that touch of the Lord in our lives. And so, that's what this series is going to be. I'm excited for it. You can go to the next slide. My lovely wife, Angie, she is filling in the gap. Uh, Richard and Nancy are ill this morning, and so you can be praying for them. Um, but thank you, Angie. I love you, babe. Oh, baby. Um, so, the title for today's message is called Presence. Um, we could also fill in the word glory there, um, but that might, I don't know, that might be a trigger word, I don't know, but presence. Uh, the, the passage we're going to be looking at is Second Chronicles 5, 2 through 14, and the big idea that we're going to be exploring is that God's presence makes all the difference. God's presence makes all the difference. You can go to the next slide. So uh, I believe it was two days ago, my family and I, we were up in Newport, and we were visiting the Hatfield Science Center. It's our favorite place because you can get basically the same value you get from the Oregon Coast Aquarium for a fraction of the price. It's fantastic. Um, and it's really short, and so you don't have to walk great distances. Uh, one of the things that they have there is the simulator because it's a part of Oregon State University's thing. If you're not a Beavers fan, forgive me. Um, but they do amazing work, and I'm like, why aren't we doing this everywhere? Anyway, I digress. So 
We were coming to the end of our time, and uh, at the very end, there is this simulator where you get to uh, simulate driving their big research tugboat out either in or out of Yaquina Bay. And so I thought, and Owen really, my youngest, he really wanted to do this simulator. And so I was like, okay. Um, I've never driven a boat before, and I've never, especially at this kind of level, let alone a simulator. And so I'm like, I'm going to let this kid do whatever, do what you want, kid. It doesn't matter. And so, uh, but in the simulator, we were going to go out of Yaquina Bay, and he just starts cranking the wheel, cranking the wheel. And like, we don't know how to like navigate the throttle and the thrust and the different things and like how to coordinate those levers and don't trust me to drive a boat unless it's life or death. I don't know, but <laughs> I digress. So we're, we're doing this thing and as we're going, I'm starting to pick up on it, starting to figure it out. And there was this one point though where <laughs> I figured it out, how like I could tell exactly because, I mean, he was just turning it every which way that he wanted it to go, just like flinging it. And it's like, how do you know which direction you're going? How do I even, huh, what do I do? And what was fascinating is like, I finally realized there was this, uh, this like tachometer or something or other to say um, which degree that the, the rudder was going. And so I was like, great, this is fantastic. Only problem was we were already butted up against the, the, the bridge. <laughs> there was no returning. And so, I mean, we tried, and we tried as best we could, but then the simulation just ended and all of that. That's my really uh, funny anecdote to mention how it's really important to start right. It's important to have your wheel of your life pointed in a good direction where you know that, you know, whether it's a degree or two to the left or to the right, that it's the direction that God wants you to go. And so um, as we do that, that's one of the reasons why I kind of want to make it our regular rhythm to start the year with prayer and with fasting as a way of seeking the Lord and His vision for our lives and for the life of our church. And so, um, <coughs> excuse me, starting next week um, after potluck, um, I'd like to, to call for our church to do a fast together. Now, some of you might be thinking, Tim, I can't do a fast. That'll kill me. Um, and you're right. So there's different ways of fasting. We'll talk all about that. Um, at the very end, but I just want to plant that seed of an idea that we're going to pray and fast for 21 days after potluck next week, and uh, we're going to seek the Lord together. Amen? Amen. Okay, you can go to the next slide. Ah, here we go. So before we jump in to Second Chronicles, there is some stuff that we need to cover. If if you're not interested in these details, I promise there's going to be a payoff at the end. But if, you know, you'd rather just tune me out, it'll be like five or ten minutes of me just helping you <laughs> understand some things. So, uh, people of Israel, 
in Scripture, we have recorded that, you know, God brought them out of Egypt, brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses goes up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston style, um, you know. Uh, and, but while he was there, also, um, God told Moses, hey, this is, you're going to build this thing called a tabernacle, and this is where people are going to come and meet with me. This is how they are going to come and connect with me uh, through this thing called worship. And then, um, so God gave a very detailed list of all the measurements and the types of material. We're not going to go into all of that today. What I want to point out, though, is that within the approach of the tabernacle, as well as eventually the temple, there is a pattern. The pattern is that you, you enter the tabernacle or that space, and there is the outer court area. So that's that yellowish spot on the screen. <laughs> and that's where everybody can be. So you pay, or not you pay, you offer up your sacrifice at the altar of uh, the bronze altar, and you can be there, and you can worship God, and you, you can be ministered to by the priests, etc. Then there's the holy place, so that's the next level in. Uh, only the priests can be there. So if, you were, if your lot came due for be, serving as a priest, you could enter that place, and you would minister at these different uh, pieces of furniture. There were different uh, uh, rituals and things that you would do that were prescribed in the book of Leviticus. Beyond that point, though, so is the, the, the most inner spot. Uh, in the tabernacle, it's called the Holy of Holies. Um, in the temple, it's called the inner sanctuary. Um, at the entrance of that, there was the altar of incense where the, the high priest would offer up prayers on behalf of the people. And then they would enter this curtain and go in. Uh, the high priest would go in. Only one person was allowed in one day a year on the Day of Atonement to um, sprinkle blood on this one article uh, or this one you know, piece of furniture called the Ark of the Covenant. And um, it was with the tabernacle. That was where God's presence literally was. Um, so, if, if you were reading through the book of Exodus or even through like the first five books of the Bible, uh, when it talks about the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, um, you know, that was the literal manifestation of God's presence here on earth. And so, when the Israelites would set up camp, um, you would see this glory from outside through that pillar of fire, pillar of cloud, but inside it was just this glorious presence, and God was literally there. Now, uh, you can go to the next slide. So, that, that's a picture of what we can guess the Ark of the Covenant may have looked like. Um, so, you have this box with some carrying poles. You're not supposed to touch the box. Um, there's a person in Scripture who did that, and it didn't go well for them. Um, and so, uh, but you're supposed to carry it on these certain kinds of poles 
Um, and then there are these, uh, these creatures called cherubim. They're like angels, but like their wings kind of cover over the seat. Um, and that the, the top is called the mercy seat. Um, and that is where the high priest would sprinkle the blood from the atoning sacrifice once a year on the Day of Atonement. Uh, you can go to the next slide. So, to bring us to where we are today, uh, where we're going to cover today. So, <clears throat> the man Moses, uh, called by God to lead God's people out of Egypt into the land that he had promised them, uh, he received this vision and this revelation of the tabernacle um, at Mount Sinai. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, fast forward a couple hundred years, you have uh, the man David, who eventually became king. Uh, he started as a shepherd boy, and then he became like the minstrel to the king, and then he slew a giant. I think you've heard that story before, and <laughs> I think everybody in the world has at some point. But um, eventually, when he becomes king someday, he has this conviction in his heart that at that time, the tabernacle was resting at a place called Shiloh. Um, the, the high priest and his family were wicked, and so um, the ark got captured, whole, whole scenario. Um, but eventually, uh, they, they got the ark back, and David was so excited. He's like, yes, God's presence, and they're doing this marching thing. And that was when, like, there was one of the priests who were carrying it, and the ark accidentally, he, he lost his grip, um, and then he tried to steady it, but when he touched it, the dude died. Not making that up, it's, it's somewhere in 1 Samuel, 1st <laughs> or 2nd Samuel. And so, um, David was freaked out. He said, how can I have God's, you know, ark come into Jerusalem? And so, Fast forward, um, eventually um, uh, David makes peace with this, and he, he pioneers this vision for worship, where he trains up a bunch of musicians, um, he, he institutes a bunch of songs to be sung, and the scripture to be read, um, and all of this would take place, and Thanksgiving offerings would be offered up on this place, place called Mount Zion where the Ark of the Covenant, remember that, that grid of that pattern, it wasn't just in the Holy of Holies, it was out in the open for everybody to be able to experience that way. And that is, that's a foreshadow, that's a picture for what we get to experience today uh, because of Jesus and because of, of His sacrifice. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But so there's Mount Sinai, there's Zion. Now, David also, later on in life, he has this conviction that I have this great palace, but God's ark rests in a tent. This is not okay. We need to remedy this. And so he, uh, uh, the prophet at the time said, you know, go ahead and go do what the Lord's laid on your heart. Well, then God said, that was bad advice. Don't do that. Um, that, yes, his conviction was right, but that David was a man of war 
even though he was a man after God's own heart, he had killed too many people in, in battle. And so he said, David, you aren't going to be the one to build me this house, but your son Solomon is. And so when Solomon became king, King David dies, Solomon becomes king, um, then starts the project to start building God's house. And the place that was chosen was Mount Moriah. Um, now, for some of you Bible geeks out there um, and, and whatnot, <laughs> uh, Mount Moriah, interestingly enough, is the place that Abraham took Isaac up to when God said, I want you to offer your son to me as a sacrifice that Mount Moriah was the place that they went up to, and that was where God provided the substitute. And so that's a fascinating tidbit. But so kind of three different iterations of this place where people can come and meet with God. And today we're going to kind of parachute drop into this moment where we're not going to read about how the temple was built that's a series for another time. We're just going to look at what happened when it got completed, and then we're kind of at the beginning of this big celebration. So, are you still with me? Maybe? Okay. <laughs> Here we go. That's all the context you need for right now. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Second Chronicles uh, chapter 5. We'll actually begin in verse 1. It gives a bit of context. Okay. Second Chronicles 5. <clears throat> Thus, all the work that Solomon did for the house of the Lord was finished. Hallelujah. And Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated and stored the silver, the gold, and all the vessels in the treasuries of the house of God. Here we go. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled before the king at the feast that is in the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the Levites took up the ark, and they brought up the ark, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The Levitical priests brought them up, and King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the Ark so that the cherubim made a covering above the Ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary. But... They could not be seen from outside, and they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets that Moses put there at Horeb, 
where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, for all the priests who were present had consecrated themselves without regard to their divisions, and all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun, their sons and kinsmen, arrayed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, and lyres, stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters, and it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord recorded in Second Chronicles. I'd like to make a few observations from our passage. The first is that our assembly is oriented by God's presence. Our assembly is oriented by God's presence. What I mean by that is that we can gather as people anywhere. We can share a meal. We can even somehow within our culture raise up a song for all to hear. (laughs) And, you know, people might join in. Uh, We can celebrate. We can be thankful. We do this at Thanksgiving, right? Um, But there are moments and places that are marked by God's presence. Um, Now, today, we don't experience it in that cloud by day, fire by night. We don't experience it necessarily as like some big, you know, bright light, you know, blind you kind of presence thing. But we do experience God's presence when we gather together, when we assemble. What's fascinating about both the tabernacle and the temple, if you were to research all the different types of furniture that gets used, they are all important and they are all fascinating in how they point you to Jesus. It's amazing. But all of that means nothing if the ark's not there. If God, and it's not just that there's some box that's overlaid with gold and has poles on it and has some, you know, nice little angels on top to make you feel really good. No, it's not that, right? And there are purposes to all of those things, but it's that God's presence defined the tabernacle. And when His presence leaves, we're in trouble. That's where, I think it's in the book of Ezekiel, there's, um, you know, there's this priest who's in exile, and he has this prophetic vision of how the glory of the Lord was leaving the temple and all the reasons for why that was happening. Now, what do we do with this? 
First of all, God's presence, it's kind of like a compass <laughs> that you orient your life around. Um, it was fascinating this week. Somehow my kids got a hold of some compass from somewhere. I don't even know. And my youngest, Owen, he, he bring. is that from you, Stephen? That was from you. Thank you, Stephen. Showed up in a sermon illustration. Here we go. So Owen, he comes up to me. He's like, Dad, how do I use this? I'm like, buddy, I don't even know. But so I knew enough to, okay, you line up the arrow with, with the, the other arrow that's kind of marked on top of the thing, and that shows you where north is. And then you kind of orient yourself in your surroundings to wherever north is, right? And so if you want to go a certain degree, it, it was the kind that showed you the degrees of the compass, right? And so if you want to go like, you know, three, three degrees to, you know, northwest, then you would kind of shift your compass around, but you know where north is, but you know, okay, this is where my life is. So how that picture for me <laughs> relates to our passage is that, yes, our assembly, when we gather, we are oriented by God's presence, but also our lives are oriented by God's presence. There are moments um, where the Holy Spirit will remind you of His presence. Sometimes those are good moments. Sometimes those are get out of, you know, danger, danger, friend. <laughs> don't, don't be there. And that, you know, we experience God's presence and that helps orient our lives and helps direct our lives in God's way. And so I would submit to you that God's presence makes all the difference in our lives. And one of the ways that we can apply this awareness of where God's presence is in our life, like a compass, is through prayer, more than just meals. It's through actually reading the Bible, God's written word, that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, by the way. And so, reading God's Word, journaling about what you're reading, about what you're going through, coming to times of worship or in, in your own personal devotion time, you know, participating in worship, asking yourselves questions like, God, where did I experience your presence in this day? Where did I experience your presence in this week? And what does that tell me? You can go to the next slide. <coughs> Our connection flows uh, with God flows from covenant. That's my second observation. Because, um, so, yes, Ark of the Covenant, super important, God's presence, yes. Um, but this box wasn't just some ordinary box that God blessed and said, oh, here we go, that's great. Um, it held really important things. At one point, it, it held um, a sample of the manna that the people of Israel had, had to eat for 40 years. <laughs> um, it also, because of you know, the testimony of the priesthood, um, 
There was another instance where people were challenging Aaron's authority. Um, and so uh, there was this staff that God made blossom with, with buds of some kind. And so that was in there at some point. And then there were the tablets of the covenant. Think Charlton Heston, Ten Commandments, right? These were the stone tablets that had been given on Mount Sinai to Moses. And by this point in the story, for whatever reason, we don't know, all that's left in there is the, the terms of the covenant that was there. How does this all relate to Raiders of the Lost Ark, you might be asking yourself. Well, um, it's because, so one of the reasons, probably the chief reason actually, that the, the chief priest or high priest, he would go in and make atonement once a year for the people. He would sprinkle the blood of the atoning sacrifice on the mercy seat. Why? What's the purpose of that practice? You might be asking yourself. I do sometimes. And the reason is because when God looks down, like let's imagine for a moment, it wasn't this way, but imagine that the, the covering was see-through and God can see the terms of the covenant there. We break that covenant all the time. You know, with that top 10, Ten Commandments, um, or whatever was written on there to remind God of that covenant, you know, because of our sin nature, we break that. Even in our best moments, we miss the mark. And that blood that is on that mercy seat, when God looks down, He sees the purity of that blood and doesn't lash out in wrath to his people, he forgives them. He says, okay, I can dwell here. I can be with you because of the blood of the sacrifice. Unlike <laughs> in Indiana Jones, which is largely just fiction. And we don't even know where the Ark of the Covenant is today. It's probably melted and like recycled into gold somewhere. Um, but there's this moment, and if you've seen it, you probably know where these, these Nazi guys are wanting to wield this power of God's glory like they could. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, and for some reason they have this brilliant idea, we're going to open it up. <laughs> Bad move. Don't do it. And there's that one guy where I think like one of the guy's heads explodes and like another guy, the, the face melts off. And excuse me for being so graphic, but you know, whether or not that happened to people who literally experienced that, I don't think that's the point. I think the point is that God's righteousness and God's law is so pure and so good that we don't stand a chance in the light of it, right? Like, it, if I'm judged on just my righteousness, I'm dead. Like, I might as well have my face melted off, <laughs> and that's not, that's not good. Um, what's that? Well, I know, right? Exactly. So, 
So how can we apply this? Because um, we don't want our faces melted off. First of all, that, so our connection flows from covenant. This is where God, it's like His throne, you know, the, the mercy seat, the throne. How do we, you know, our connection, it flows from that covenant that He has with us. First, we can see God's goodness through it all. Next is that we can admit our need for atonement. I can't enter God's presence on my own. I need a blood sacrifice. And thank God I don't have to raise livestock and bring, you know, Bessie the cow with me every time I come to church, right? Um, you know, and we'll get to that in just a second because the third thing that we can see is that trusting in Jesus, it's what brings us into his presence. It's what allows us access to God's presence anywhere we go, any time of day. And so you can go to the next slide. There's this passage from uh, Hebrews 9 that says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, so we're talking about heavenly tabernacle at this point. The, you know, uh, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the pur purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant." In summary, because Jesus died on our behalf as our substitute with his own blood, he took his blood to that heavenly court where, like, the, the truer Ark of the Covenant was, where the truer mercy seat was, and he sprinkled once for all time his blood to cover us so that as we are in Christ— when God looks at us, he's not seeing my lack. He sees Christ's fulfillment and his completion. And so, friends, that's good news for you and me who are in Christ. That justification and that sanctification, that setting apart to the Lord, that all comes because of Jesus. God's presence makes all the difference. And we see that both in the ark, from the ark, and what that, how that applies to us today. Bringing it on home. Uh, you can go to the next slide. <clears throat> Excuse me. Our encounter is defined by God's glory. So there's this moment at the very end of this passage where um, it's like the climactic moment that 
is here <laughs> of, of this passage where the priests, they've just installed the Ark of the Covenant to the most holy place. They come out of there and then they strike up the band. And from that very first moment where all the priests are raising up their song to the Lord saying, for he is good and his love endures forever, instantaneously we can assume from Scripture the house is filled with a cloud that manifests God's glory, so much so that the priest can't even be in there because God's presence is so thick and tangible that they couldn't even stand before His holiness and how good He was. That when they raised up that song, God's presence fell among them and filled that house. So our encounter, I would submit to you, is defined by God's glory. When we experience God, it's in light of His glory. It's not because of anything we've done. It's because of who He is and His presence. Now, so I, I mentioned how we were at Newport this last week, just a few days ago. This was actually yesterday. Um, I'm, ironically, the Lord has led me to Florence, and I'm not much of a sand guy. Um, but I do like to walk on the beach. It was a moment where we were finally going and getting, uh, in my opinion, the best chowder on the coast um, at Chowder Bowl. And my son Ruben wanted to go and write on the beach. He wanted to go play on the beach. And I'm like, okay, we'll go stand, but we're not, we're not digging in the sand. But we go. And he's like, Dad, I want to find a stick so I can write something. And I'm like, okay. And so we did. And this was the first thing that he wrote. He wrote his name. And he said, Reuben and Dad forever. Um, and then he wrote a couple of other things. Like I think one was, Dad is the best. And, um, and different things. And it was such... It was such a special moment for me because there are other moments where he's like, Dad, you hate me. <laughs> like, <laughs> right? But in this moment, there was just this glimmer in this moment where I got to experience how, man, my son, he feels this connection with me. And that, what that spoke to me in light of our passage and everything, it was like, so my son Reuben, he could have written that anywhere, in any way, but he chose that moment to do that. What made that moment special though, even more special, is I was there with him. And so, you know, uh, the lesson from, from 2 Chronicles 5, Solomon had gone throughout this whole ordeal, multi-year project to build this temple for God. And as a show of devotion to the Lord, like writing in the sand, Solomon and God forever. But if God's presence wasn't there, it wouldn't mean the same thing. Like, it might be this great 
ode to the Lord, or, you know, this great show and this great masterpiece that says God is the God above all gods, and He's so good, and He's so amazing, and He's so holy, and so pure, and awesome, and worthy. But if God's presence wasn't there, then it wouldn't mean the same thing to Solomon. If Reuben had written this, you know, it might still mean something to him, but it means something more to him now that I was there. So much that after we, we filled our bellies with the best chowder on the coast, um, that he was like, Mom, I got to show you what I wrote. And I think by that point, some of it had washed away, so he wrote it again, and, you know, these different things. And that encounter, it was defined by me being there and me participating in that. For Solomon, in that moment of, of worship and for the priests and everybody, that moment was defined by God's presence, being there, and them experiencing it firsthand. So, as, um, as we look ahead at this coming year, as we calibrate our year around God's presence, I want to submit to you, first of all, God loves you, that God is here with you, that it's not just that God created everything, but He created you. It's not just that He loves the world, but He loves you. He is here for you. And I believe this morning, looking around, we are here for Him. We are here to connect with Him. Each and every day, um, we are reminded in some way that we are here to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And so, I want to encourage you that wherever you're at in your walk with the Lord, the blood of Jesus covers you as you are in Christ. Not only that, but you can experience God's presence here and now in your day today. I, I would encourage you, all you need to do is ask and say, God, would you please show yourself to me in some way? Help me know you're here. And I believe that he will be faithful to do that. And we can talk more about that another time. <coughs> so, let's pray. <clears throat>